So hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Joshua Jackson. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you're in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Each week on this programme, I'm joined by a different leadership figure from the world of business, education, politics, sports, or even from local communities in the aim of truly discovering who those people are that get up every morning and make this country work. We get their take on the current economic and political landscape of the UK and discuss everything from supply chain headaches to good quality design. Um, And of course, the success and the innovation that makes it all worthwhile in the end. On today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Anna Liu, a co-founder and architect of Tonkin Liu, which she co-founded in 2002, um, an award-winning architect and you know, a really great um, organisation to be working for, having worked across so many well-designed projects across London, the UK, and has ext- she has extensive um, teaching experience across the world. Um, without further ado, Anna, hello. Hi there, how are you? Very well, thank you. Very well, thank you for um, you know agreeing to sort of come on the the show today. Um, you know, it's been a an interesting past eighteen months, um, and you know, been so much sort of you know business disruption in various industries, and obviously how you work as an architect. Um, you know, trying to you know, deal with some of this disruption, especially as it's continuing now, as I say, with sort of supply chain issues and um, still so many, uh, you know, areas of of confusion. Um, It would be remiss of me not to sort of start by asking, you know, how's it all been? Uh, Well, I'd say it's been really tough. Um, We were fortunate enough to have just won a a major design competition uh, to design Grosvenor Square in London, which is a fantastic project, just before the pandemic hit. Um, despite that, just working through the sort of challenges of uh, working remotely and, um, you know, living up to the sort of fantastic potentials of that project was was really uh, uh, quite tough. I think we realized through that through this experience that so much of architecture and design is in the sort of face-to-face and the, the brainstorming collective uh, thinking that we get when we're together. And so many things are, are really quite hard. At the same time, there was a sort of strange kind of uh, maybe sense of uh, liberational euphoria that maybe this is a chance to um, work and live differently. So I think for, for many of our team members, they felt uh, the balance of working from home and not having to commute uh, such a long distance uh, was, was uh, potentially a really good thing. But as time went on, as you um, remember, the, the, the periods went on and uh, I think we could see the real, uh, I suppose, uh, damage to people's sort of uh, psyche in terms of uh, just being quite isolated and alone at home and without the sort of peer um, uh, stimuli that they would get in a, in a studio. So we, I think we learned so much about 
healthy, much more agile, and and perhaps uh, to be less arrogant <laughs> about you know sort of technology or media is going to fix it all. There's so many things uh, about human interactions that are incredibly important to a project, to the success of a project. I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, it's one of those things, especially in a creative industry like yours, that, um, you know, having meetings with clients and meetings across your team that when you're not in the room and you are having to rely on, you know, sort of technology, you're missing those nonverbal cues. You're, you know, you're not, um, you know, seeing the sort of slight facial twitches, really being able to understand sort of sometimes the tension, if maybe you've, you've gone down a, a different path than what the client potentially wants. And do you think that that's, you know, affected your sort of design choices, the way that you've been able to engage with clients, especially on some of the more sort of, as I say, creative projects there? Mm. I think so, and I think what we've uh, done recently is we're we're really uh, striking a balance between working remotely and having conference calls and and having face to face meetings, which I think are incredibly important on a regular basis. Uh, so so that's what we're learning uh, that nothing replaces that um, at a key point. Uh, in the project where, cause as, as you know, to be creative, you have to allow things to emerge and they can't always uh, be put down or, or uh, tangibly described very clearly. And, and it's it's that sort of, uh, it's what's unsaid as well as uh, what's said that, that's incredibly important to a creative process. Exactly. So I think recently we're learning uh, how to strike that balance. Brilliant. It's, um, you know, it doesn't seem to have stopped you and the uh, the firm from picking up a number of awards over the last couple of years, though, for, uh, you know, some of your projects, two already this year and, um, you know, two last year, including one from Reba. So, you know, very well done on that. And obviously, it seems like you've um, you. been able to, to navigate that, uh, you know, that hybrid model quite well. Um, and that, you know, sort of is a a great way to think, you know, about your own sort of leadership style, you know, when all this sort of uh, emerged, there was quite a lot of panic um, across all sectors of society and, and individuals. And, you know, it seems yeah. like that sort of, uh, you know, come down a little bit now, you know, people are more willing to, um, you know, go out and get back into the office and, um, you know, starts to get back to that level sense of normality. But um, when it comes to you being able to sort of engage your team, you know, keep them going during this time period, do you think that, you know, you had to step up or do you think that, um, you know, the team were, 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 you know, well supported generally? Mm. Definitely had to step up. And it, it's that thing again of um, um, putting effort where, where your heart is. So whether it's uh, prioritizing um, aspects of project or um, you know, really uh, noticing certain things are not right and, and really um, putting a lot of effort into those things. And I think our strength has always been that we're SME, that we've always been for you know, the last 20 years. And our, our resilience perhaps comes from that, you know, in the last recession in, in 2008, we survived that by being very small, even smaller, and um, teaming up with other SMEs who are incredibly talented and specialist people, you know, ranging from engineers to lighting designer to visualizers. So I think architecture is such an interesting, complex uh, set of skills that, that it could um, potentially uh, allow people to, to become specialized and, and then to sort of 
cluster together uh, depending on the project. So you don't necessarily have to, to run a huge uh, practice, but you could effectively um, do much bigger projects because you are a cluster of SMEs and, and that actually creates much better projects. I suppose that gives you something to, you know, some other people to rely on, people that are, you know, going through the same things as you as well, um, you know, within their own particular niche and specialism. And do you think that was a particular support for you, being able to have those connections of sort of like-minded individuals and like-minded companies that you'd you'd worked with previously? From our 20 years of teaching and practice experience between myself and my partner, Mike, Mike Tonkin, we've met so many amazing people who have uh, different skills and different interests. So, it, you, know, you know, it might range from disaster relief shelters to uh, spe- specialist uh, fabrication methods that are being developed in health. You know, so I think from through this network, we built this incredible report uh, with all these people that, we're actually very loyal to. So time and again, we will return to them. And if they obviously are too busy, they would know people whom they trust. So I think in in a time of flux, trust is really the number one thing and how you build that trust and keep reinforcing that trust with the people that you know and you you could uh, develop a fantastic project with. It's all about relationships, isn't it? That's um, completely, you know, and and the, that again is something you need to reinforce with the occasional face to face and um, the the sort of uh, time and effort you you would invest in in, in friendships um, and families. And you know, obviously, over the course of this, um, there have been lots of sort of project delays. Um, when I know that a lot of construction firms were having, um, you know, delays that were then costing them an awful lot. They couldn't get, uh, you know, they couldn't get hold of staff. They couldn't, um, you know, provide on time, and that led to a lot of contractual issues. Did you suffer with any of that, or or was everything relatively plain sailing for you? And we most most certainly could see that, and I guess it's about understanding the delays and and how much uh, to build in that tolerance. And and in a way, I see those challenges in the next twelve to eight, eighteen months as well. We know that certain um, material supplies are in shortage, and not only that, in much delay. So I, I think it's just understanding. Uh, again, how to think laterally around the, these uh, issues. Does it have to be uh, this particular way of, of constructing or fabricating or can can another way be developed? Uh, so in, in a way, what what it's, what it's forcing us to do is to think more innovatively and think outside the box. We can no longer just rely on how we used to do things. And as a firm that's uh, you know been able to to survive for so long, as you say, going through the recession, still you know going through yeah. this and winning awards, it seems like you're perfectly positioned to to have that more sort of holistic view approach to you know good quality design and, and thinking. You know, what if we can't get it done this way? We'll get it done another. And and it's all about communication that way with um, with the clients and and with your partners. And you know, and throughout this Absolutely. as well. You've had, um, you know, you've got staff and people have been working from home. How do you see uh, the next 
sort of few months going? Are you going to be coming back into the office? Are you going to be keeping with the the sort of hybrid style that's been going on um, recently, or, or have you found a new way? It, it very much depends on the stage of a project. In so, for instance, we just won two new competitions uh, for a very prestigious project up north, and we're going to need. Uh, key moments where we were collectively brainstorming. And then we're also going to need quiet times where people are are simply getting on with producing certain things. So I think a hybrid model would be very good because the reality is so many of our staff, uh, young staff, can't afford to live very centrally in London. So they're coming from sometimes an hour, an hour and a half away, which is a, a, you know, a slight tragedy, really, of the situation. They're, um, giving up so much of their day for for this commute. So I think a, a really healthy balance of the working from home and working together uh, would be fantastic. I think that's going to be a lot of, of what people are doing um, moving forwards. A lot of business leaders that I speak to are now more than happy to embrace the hybrid model, it seems to have uh, uh, something that was going to be slow progress, seems to have been kicked into gear and, um, you know, it's going to be a lot more of a healthy work-life balance. Uh, and in forward. a strange way, yeah, so long as everyone's uh, situation is, is good at home, for instance, you know, there is a, a proper space and, and connectivity, you need to make sure that the, the stress is removed from that situation. So it's almost like uh, central London offices won't be empty, but it would be, um, you know, it's almost like having lots of little offices all, all across the country where people could enjoy um, greener countryside and, and still work and, and really enjoy their work. But it's about, it's so much about, do I feel good about what I'm doing and, and really um, being happy to get on with it? Rather than um, you know this sort of constant anxiety of uh, uh, what what uh, what's happening. Exactly, and not um, not having the cutting out the commutes um, is very much something that people are going to to benefit from having that extra as you say, an hour in your day, two hours, maybe three in some cases. And you're right again, having that um, appreciation of of nature, of being a little bit more space, having a garden, um, you know, especially in in your fields, you know, is something that that people are no doubt going to be benefiting from. Um, And from a a sort of company perspective, you say you've just got a a couple of good contracts that um, have come on board, um, you know, projects. Um, Do you think that the next sort of, 12 months is going to be back to you know, plain sailing? Do you see that there's going to be issues even further as potentially Brexit um, um, you know, issues are, are uncovered, especially as we're seeing sort of supply chain issues now? Or do you think that there's going to be, um, you know, everything's just going to be resolved? Mm. I'm uh, generally an optimist, but I don't think everything will be easily resolved. I think we have to work really, really hard uh, as architects. We have to use all of our, our skills, creative and technical skills, to to get around these problems, whether they're to do with the supply or the cost of things. Um, because what we don't want to do is for projects and clients to lose confidence or, or to, to halt projects because they're unaffordable or uh, simply um, taking too long. So it, it's something that we need to work really hard to overcome. And I, I 
you know, can't say I have the answer, but all I know is that architects uh, do have incredible skills. Uh, I think they often underplay how effectively they can think, you know, creatively, and, and they are problem solvers. You know, they're not just kind of aesthetically driven. So, you know, all the talk about minimizing the harm to the environment through the design, it's also about, rather than just reducing harm and reducing carbon, I think so many of our projects could potentially uh, contribute much more proactively to the, uh, the the betterment of the environment. So that's where we need to be thinking, not taking a step back and, and minimizing the harm and reducing things, but, but actually optimizing innovation and creativity, both in environmental and social terms of, of what architecture can do. I think that's really an incredible um, answer that you've just given there, being able to not only put your, your skills to good um, good use, obviously architects, you have to think about logistics, um, design, planning, mathematics, uh, you know, usability. Exactly. And- Let's work closely with the contractors because we've always had a fantastic relationship with contractors. We respect the people who, who can build and deliver. So let's work with them to come up with a new model for, for making the building industry much more holistic. So there should be a sea change, not a kind of retract uh, to you know, doing something smaller or, or slower. And, and just, I, mean, I, I think a retraction would be a real shame because that's driven by fear and, and perhaps guilt that you know, every, every time you build, you, of course, you are um, costing, uh, some, uh, you're contributing to some carbon costs and so on and so forth. But think about the, the potential gain in, in the long-term future, which is still what, how architecture benefits society, environmentally and socially. Yep, now is definitely not the time to be, you know, just going back to old methods. Now's the time to be Absolutely. thinking more expansive, yeah. thinking about the, the possibilities and, and the excitement that new technologies and exactly. You know, so we really have to overcome our fear. You know, the great saying from Roosevelt that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And we, we just need to have it, it's not about being uh, naive. It's it's really just not giving up hope, and and actually, it's our responsibility to to really push forward. Well, Anna, that was an incredible way, I think, to to finish off the um, the interview here. That was okay. a, a really hopeful, and it's great to be hearing somebody that is quite so passionate about the possibilities, you know, moving forwards, not only for for yourself and for your firm, but also for you know, the, the design processes and the, um, you know, society as a whole. So Anna, I'd really want to thank you for, for coming on the show today and hopefully we can have you back on in a, you know, a few months, um, you know, Q1 Lovely. of next year to talk about the next, yeah. the next steps. Can, can have an update. I could be completely wrong, <laughs> but we can have an update. Well, it's great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anna. That was Anna Liu, co-founder of Architectural Practice, Tomkin Liu. Great to have her on the show. And next up, we'll be hearing from Leaders' Council Chairman Lord David Blunkett as he talks about the political and economic landscape looking ahead, as well as some of the challenges that have been going on over the past 18 months, giving his take on business disruption and political disruption. He'll be interviewed by Matthew O'Neill. Lord Blunkett, welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way I, i'm not sentimental about this things will revert mm -hmm. but actually i think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.